Hello and welcome to the Complexion Podcast, where we get under the skin of what it feels like to be non-white by hearing voices that we traditionally don't, that of everyday, extraordinary, ordinary non-white women. Now, it's important to say that the term non-white is used deliberately here to frame and give context to these women's experiences and voices. And it isn't used as a label or definition for their complexion, race or ethnicity. My name is Sakina Ballard. I'm a brown woman and mother, and I'm also a trauma-informed therapeutic coach and mentor, and I specialize in the perinatal period. This podcast was born out of conversations, and it's here to open up more important conversations. So please come and leave your reflections in a review. Plus do give it a like and a subscribe too. Your support and voice is invaluable. Each one of the guests shares aspects of a precious part of our human experience, their personal story. And it's a privilege to be able to share this with you. So thank you for being here and being a part of the conversation. We hope you enjoy it and we hope you find it inspiring and enlightening too. Hi and welcome to today's podcast of Complexion. And today I am chatting to a really dear friend, Andy, Andy Hall. And so there are many things I could say about Andy. I've known her for many years, but I'm actually going to hand over to Andy to tell you a bit more about her. Andy, hello. Hello, my darling. How are you? Thank you, my love. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm very honoured and flattered that you asked me to uh, take part in this podcast. So I'm really privileged to be speaking to you on here. I know we've known each other for many, many years and we've talked many things together. So this is a real privilege for me to be able to share your voice and story and hear more too. As is always infinitely more interesting, how would you like to introduce yourself? So yes, my name is Andy Hall. I am an actor, um, uh, but I have worn various hats over the years to make a living. Um, have done a lot of acting work in an educational setting which is how we met um, <laughs> many moons ago um, so that's theatre and education so from touring around schools in drafty gym halls right through to working in the corporate world and the public sector on training courses around diversity equality inclusion bullying harassment all that sort of thing um, so um, yeah, that's probably all I could think to say. <laughs> oh, that's so gorgeous. You just brought back so many memories of those <laughs> early days of like TIE and, you know, yeah. anyone who's, who's listening who's running, what is TIE? It's theatre and education. Um, mm. Ask any actor about theatre and education and they will, I'm sure, have some stories for you. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have never asked you actually, Andy, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really intrigued to hear this answer as you give it. Is how would you describe your complexion? See, the first word that immediately springs to mind is just is brown. Um, it's interesting. I've probably never actually really given it any thought um, because it's only when you fill out forms or what have you that they suddenly you have the black Caribbean, black other, black African, black <laughs> hundred and one definitions and then I, that always used to rile me up because then you'd always just they, they used to just have white 
they'd have white and then they'd have mixed race and they'd have all these other denominations for um, people that weren't white. So that, that always used to be quite interesting. That's changed somewhat now because they suddenly realised that, you know, white Irish, white Scottish. White, um, yes. But yeah, so I suppose brown, but it's interesting you ask I've never, I don't think I've ever actually thought about how I describe my complexion. Yeah, that's so interesting to hear. And you describing it in that way, because as you were saying that, I realised that so often these conversations are centred around somebody else's definition of where we come from and not our present day experience of what it's like to live in our skin. You know, when we think about how the world was mapped out, it's a really post-imperialistic world we live in now. Like when we talk about the Caribbean or we talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, Africa, um, America, British, it's like these really defining maps that are so sort of, created through this colonialist history yeah, of the world so even still as we're asking people to define themselves with there is also still this lens of this kind of you know once colonial past that we are all now identifying through thank you so much for sharing that that's going to tick in my brain for a long time to come <laughs> and i i'm really sort of intrigued i know you said that it's the first time you've ever really thought about your describing your complexion in that way and I guess the natural next thought for me is well when when did you think about if at all actually or realize that you were Mm. non-white? That's not a really interesting question so I think there's always been an awareness as a child of where I came from because my background is Jamaican and, and Bayesian so my mum's from Jamaica and my dad's from Barbados. Um, and so there was always talk, you know, I was always the youngest in the room. So uh, people would talk about Jamaica and ackee and saltfish and certain things around food and uh, just, yeah, certain other things around the culture as a whole that people were. So I was aware that I wasn't necessarily English, wholly English. That's how I felt at the time. Um, but I think the first time I think, I was made to feel anything negative about my skin was, I remember I was in Watford actually, and I was with my aunt who's sadly passed away a number of years ago now, but somebody, we passed the phone, but she used to live in Watford. And I think Watford used to be a very strong BMP um, area. And we were walking and we passed these two white boys in a telephone box and we got right down to the end of the road and then they started shouting out something and I remember telling to my aunt and saying what were they shouting and she said because she turned around and went I'm proud of it and so I think I think I sort of said to her what 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 did they sound and she said they shouted out nigger um and I remember saying to her are oh, people like that are just mad um but I think that was the first time that it sort of hit home how other people would be negative about um my skin color because I think up until that point, I think there was an awareness of, of my skin colour and it being different to say people at school, but it it had never been it had never been an issue. I, I grew up in Brent, which is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse borough. Um, it certainly was in the seventies and eighties, anyway, in London. And from nursery to primary school to right through to secondary school, it was I suppose predominantly I suppose it was it was brown kids. <laughs> so. I think that was probably the time. I do remember, and I don't know if other women of colour have this experience, where I do remember putting towels on my head and pretending it was my hair. 
And I can't remember at what sort of age I started doing that because obviously I have very tight Afro hair, you know, which, which I absolutely love, but it's taken me a long time <laughs> to, to love the way it is naturally. Um, but I remember that and I can't remember if that might have been something around feeling other or feeling different to what I was seeing on television, I would say, because I don't think I ever got anything negative from the people I grew up with, because like I say, it was very mixed area. Um, but I think it was looking at television, which I used to watch a lot and just not seeing people that looked like me as well. So I don't know, I can't remember if those two things sort of coincided at a very close time, because I know, I, I think I must've been about maybe seven or eight when the old incident with the two boys in the phone box happened. Um, so maybe, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's, that's quite young. So I think as quite a young child, actually, I was made to feel, okay, something's a bit different about you here. Hmm. It's really interesting that, that age as well, because when you were saying that, I was thinking actually it's such a pivotal point, isn't it? That sort of transition when we get to kind of seven or eight, we kind of leaving our young childhood, our kind of preschool mm. innocence behind. And we're starting to step into our kind of junior life, you know, where we start to embrace a sense of identity, a, set, a sense of who we, who we are in the world outside of just our family life. It, it really struck me when you were talking about sort of growing up and having, you know, the sense of your family and the sense of culture. And, and, you know, I always think it's so profound in so many of these conversations, the themes that come up around kind of our hair, our food, our, <laughs> you know, our kind of conversations, the way family life is formed as being so pivotal and, and holding of our sense of, our sense of self or, or rootedness. But it struck me, those two kind of divides, one, that sense of just belonging in a way, you know, in terms of our kind of complexion and, and who we are on the outside, that sense of belonging at home. And then this real jolt of being out in the world in, outside of what home is, whether it be the four walls, Brent, but then moving out into like places like Watford, we're like, there's a bigger world and there is this hostility towards me. Uh, and I was just interested in, in that sense has that been a sense maybe that's continued in your life where there is this sort of, I suppose, a juxtaposition between a sense of feeling comfortable and belonging somewhere and then also knowing actually, oh, there is this otherness that exists through somebody else's eyes? Um, it's interesting because I've always kind of felt a little bit like an outsider and I know a lot of people say that anyway. And I don't know if that stems from those early um, experiences around identity and around people being negative towards me. Um, so I've definitely carried that around for a long time, that feeling that I don't quite fit in. And I can't help but think that some of that, if not a large part of that, has probably got to do with um, being othered constantly or being ignored as well, I think, you know, it, conversations around racism are very interesting because I think it's only now that people are starting to, I, I think I'm starting to hear conversations where people are saying, actually, it's not just about people being abusive. Um, people seem to think that if somebody's not shouting out abusive, like, you know, racial uh, slurs, then it can't possibly be racism. But actually, no, racism is when I walk into a room full of white people and I'm the last person that anybody know, feels, feels the need to speak to. Or, do, do you know what I mean? So... Yeah, I think there's always been that sense of otherness, actually. I think that's really, that's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, I remember something comes to mind where I was at a workshop 
quite a few years ago and it was around complex trauma and she sort of opened the workshop and she said neglect is also trauma neglect is abuse you know we are not just we're not just active in our in our othering of other people by actively saying it we're also that in our neglect of inclusion you know a neglect of inclusivity a neglect of creating a space of belonging when we when people walk into rooms when we walk into rooms you know and I I 100% resonate with that you know that feeling of being unseen and what I walk into a room and be really interested to hear your thoughts on this, particularly because many of the areas that we've worked in often overlap. And what we're asked to do tends to overlap, you know, in training, mm. we go into corporate training to be a non-white face, you know, and to help train people on being inclusive and diverse. And yet the conversation that's never had, and I'm sort of got my fists here as I'm talking about this, because I, I feel this so deeply is no one has asked, how does it feel for you to walk into a room? And who is it that's holding those conversations? And who is it that's creating that space? It's often the very same kind of group, but also then creating the oppression. And I just wonder, have you felt, how have you felt walking into those rooms, actually? You know, you've mentioned that sense of how it is externally, but how does that feel for you internally? the first words brings to my exhausting it has become exhausting because um you're constantly aware of as this horrible thing sometimes of you're there and you're representing your race because you know full well that if you're the only black person in a room you do something negative or that's perceived as negative suddenly all black people are like that Oh, that's a black woman, it's typical. And there was this whole thing about black women being very aggressive, you know, the strong, angry, independent black woman that you kind of grew up, or that I sort of certainly was aware of this kind of perception, which I don't think I've ever quite fit. Um, and so and so it just feels tiring. I mean, there was times going on tour. I mean, little things like going on tour where you're the only black person in the cast and they walk into a pub. And nobody thinks to go, are you all right to walk in here? Because you're in some area that's actually, you've not seen any other brown people. Yes. And you don't want to be the person to go, actually, do you know what? It looks a little bit like this could be the headquarters of, of the BNP here. So I really don't want to actually go there. Do you know? So, so, the, so there's that thing as well sometimes where you walk into some spaces and it's like, am I going to, are people going to be hostile? Are people staring at me because they don't know me, I'm from around here, or are they staring at me because I am the only black person here and I'm possibly the only black person they've seen all year, you know, or ever. <laughs> exactly. And I think, and I think people don't realise, unless you've actually been through that, I think people do not realise the constant on eggshells or awareness that you have of yourself all the time, which I'm now, I think I've reached an age where I am starting to go, I think I've just... I've had enough. I'm so exhausted by it. I walk in and, and now my attitude is if you don't like me, then just F off. But basically, if you've got an issue, I dare you to say something. I don't walk in with a chip on my shoulder. I walk in expecting to be as friendly to everybody and, and hoping everyone's as friendly to me. But I, that, that sort of sense of, of um, that caution and that tentativeness and that fear 
sometimes depending on the context of if I'm going to get something hostile or am I going to get the somebody coming up and saying oh I listen to Bob Marley or I've had that you know in places they start talking about reggae music and it's like for god's sake I actually listen to soul actually and I don't mind a bit of tears for fears every now and again so there but, but I didn't really. um but I I just I just think it becomes exhausting and I think it can I think you know stress you know, I think it's now getting, it's obviously given a lot more weight, the, the, the health consequences of stress. But nobody ever seems to talk about it in the context of race, of constantly having to walk and be aware of who you are and being the only person that looks like you in a room and being very aware of that. I think that's so, there was so much, I was like, you know, nodding away as you're saying that because just so much in that, I think that the level of stress is profound. And actually, you know, I, I, I'd be really interested. I have, I have no medical background. This is not my sort of, um, this is not my area of expertise, but I'm in my head, I just wonder if a lot of the issues that we see in terms of inflammation and illness in the body, you know, I, I have an Indian background, you know, diabetes, family history of genetic cancer, you know, partly to do with the level of stress the level of stress and, and yeah. when you know I don't know if there's research on this and it you know and this is really just my little brain ticking away kind of going oh I wonder but I just think it's undeniable the kind of in, we know of inherited trauma and when we look at inherited trauma and race and complexion and history and, and the impact of that held in a body living today, still trying to fight these same battles, but in just very diff different ways. Now in much more covert ways, I think, mm. which is sometimes even more insidious and even more painful. And I think that's it. What you're saying is that the belonging can be even more outstretched because you want to walk in a pub with your contemporaries, with your peers. Now there's no one to actually stop you. Long gone are those days where they put signs outside. Yeah. But are you welcome? Mm. Are you going to belong when you walk in there? Are you going to be comfortable? Exactly. And this inherent stress is so important. I was really struck by something you said, where you said, it's not me having a chip on my shoulder. And I just oh. thought that was so interesting because I remember growing up and the kind of narrative that was banded around, you know, I grew up in South London, a very kind of, you know, mixed area in terms of the, the individuals that lived there. And something that was always banded around, particularly around young black men, but young black people, including, you know, women or those that identify with gender in that way, is that they had a chip on their shoulder. You know, walking around with a chip on their shoulder. Why are they walking around? They're creating problems walking around with this chip on their shoulder. And how projecting that is. And I was really interested that actually that was a term you used and something that is still, you're carrying this weight. But if you try and voice this reasonable concern, this actual experience that you're living, that somehow still it might be that you're walking around slightly ungrateful. I mean, I guess a chip on the shoulder says to me someone's ungrateful, they're not appreciative of something, they're trying to cause a bit of problem, they're harboring a bit of resentment, you know. I just, I have, I guess it's just putting that there and, and asking, what, you know, 
or what's the feeling when you hear that it, even in yourself annoyance <laughs> I suppose it's just blatant annoyance the whole chip on your shoulder argument and I feel like actually and it's, it is interesting that I said that because I didn't you know that's that's how much it's been part of the narrative when it comes to race and if you do voice any concerns about racism it's oh you've got a chip on your shoulder um but my feeling around that is actually now talking about it clearly it's the perception of the other person it's the person who thinks that they've that you've got a chip on your shoulder. Actually, if you think that I've got a chip on my shoulder because I want to be treated with a bit of respect, then you must be thinking something about me that means I'm not worthy of respect. Because that's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for special treatment, actually. <laughs> it's like, just show a bit of damn respect and keep your hostility to yourself and keep your prejudices and your preconceived ideas to yourself. Um, and you can probably hear the annoyance in my voice. <laughs> it's actually really, it's really comforting and powerful to hear that, and to hear you be able to express just probably a, a tiny percentage of the real emotion that goes behind that, of the years lived with having to carry this, you know, this, in inverted commas, chip on your shoulder, you know. Um, and there was something that struck me, actually, interesting now, because of COVID-19, and people are talking about the stress that social distancing gives them, how when they walk out their front door now, they're so aware of where they are in relation to people. Yeah, that's what some of us live with 24 seven, decade after decade after decade. And you're getting stressed from it because you've, you've had to be aware of your surroundings and your proximity to people for nine months. Imagine what some of us have, some of us have been under that sort of thing for all our lives you know, that awareness of who you are in relation to everybody else, that not being able to relax completely in certain spaces, um, if that makes sense. I know it's obviously not exactly the same thing about physical proximity, but just that kind of constant heaviness yeah. of being around other people um, and the stress that, that is giving people now, I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe now you might look at racism a little bit more differently because there are parallels there. And it's interesting that it's actually since the sort of the pandemic has, you know, um, sort of, I don't know what the word is, taken over situation. I, you know, I sort of, my brain is mush when it comes to this, this, this space now. But what's interesting was how actually really somehow brought about another shift I felt you know with the Black Lives Matter with the the beginnings of these conversations starting in a with a different maybe gear now actually um and I just wondered there if there may be parallels there when you were saying that that actually there is a space for this conversation because actually you know this is an experience that people have lived with for decades um, intergenerationally you know it's an experience that's been passed down from generation to generation because the systems the the spaces in which we're living aren't actually really shifting so we're having to teach our children what it means to also live in their skin in these societies um really really interesting i think there is so much around covid and race and i know you know there's certainly been many sort of racist undertones i think even in some of the kind of reporting about where and how covid is spreading um yeah. in terms of kind of communities and kind of cultural practices or ideas um and i i wonder 
you know, how does it feel for you to be able to get angry? I was really, you know, I was, I love it. I love hearing you because I see it as impassioned and I hear your voice. Mm. But I also wonder what it means for you with everything you said at the beginning about these sort of stereotypes of being an angry black woman Mm. that are projected onto you. How easy do you find it to really express legitimate emotion for yourself? I'm finding it a lot easier now um, as I've gotten older. Um, I'm sort of embracing that kind of angry. (laughs) And I sort of, I didn't, I didn't for a long time. I feel like as individuals, we are many things actually. Um, And a lot of it, we're probably like our mums, we're like our aunts, we're probably a little bit like our uncles. We've got so much, we've got so many influences that make up our personality um, and everything from, you know, complete joy right down to despair and all the things in between and so there's a part of me now that actually embraces that anger because I've just had enough actually I've had enough of tiptoeing around the subject of race and not wanting to be the only person in the room not wanting to look like you've got the chip on the shoulder not wanting to make anybody uncomfortable because there's that as well you know you're very aware sometimes that you don't want anyone to feel guilty oh, you don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable around you if you start talking about race, you start talking about slavery, you know, and people start bristling and they're like, oh, why are you talking about that? It happened such a long time ago. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, if people stopped being racist, then I stopped talking about it. But now I feel like, I'm, I feel like it's part of being authentic. I've, I've, I feel like it's part of being authentically me. Actually, something riles me up and it's not right. I'm going to say it now. Obviously you pick and choose your battles because otherwise you could probably find something to get angry about every, every single day. You don't want to spend your whole life in arguments with people um, or debates. However, I don't worry about people, other people's guilt or other people's discomfort around my reality. Um, you can talk to me about it, but don't try and silence me now because I will, I will say it. Um, and yeah, I feel like it's just part of being a lot more honest about who I am and where my place is in this world. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think, you know, that that sense of, I know Brenna Brown talks about that, doesn't she? That actually belonging is belonging to ourselves and, and feeling a sense of belonging in ourselves, a sense of authenticity and the ability to express ourselves authentically. And I, I'm always really drawn to that as a concept for those whose identity maybe isn't rooted by society. You know, um, when we experience ourselves as non-white, it is something that I feel that has come up a lot is this sort of looking to place our identity. It's not something we're just given growing up because we're having to adapt it and evolve it and fit in with what's changing around us. We're still trying to hold on to something we were whilst trying to make more of where we might be able to get to within these systems around us. And I, um, I think there is so much in that sense of belonging and it's so warming to hear you really express what it feels like to start to come home to ourselves, to just be ourselves, you know, outside of boxes, outside of other people's perceptions. I mean, psychologically, of course, we all want a sense of individuality whilst also wanting to belong. And I think it's, this kind of interplay that feels particularly hard when you are non-white and I think being a non-white woman 
I was just interested to hear what your take on maybe that was as well, because we often talk about kind of, you know, women and kind of, I suppose, let's call feminist issues that come up for us in our life. And I was just, I suppose, don't want to discount that part of your experience as well and, and where you feel maybe those maybe layers are or those cross sections are for you. Um, oh gosh. Um, I suppose it's, it's, it's really, it's so complex as well, that whole thing, this sense of belonging and being a woman and being a non-white woman, because also, you know, I sort of talked, I said it earlier about not fitting that angry trope, that angry black woman. And then, so even amongst other black women, I felt different because I've sort of felt like I don't quite fit their idea of what, you know, a black woman should be either. Um, You know, I remember getting into a conversation once with this woman, a black woman on the train. This was years ago. Um, I can't remember what we were talking about, but we just, I didn't know her. So I I can't remember what happened, but somehow we just started talking. And then I mentioned that I was an actor. And she said, oh, I was wondering why you were so posh. (laughs) And I just thought that was really interesting. It's like... I'm from Northwest London. I grew up on a council estate. I ain't posh. <laughs> but it was just interesting because the way I spoke wasn't quite the way that she speaks. She thought I was posh. And so there's always this sense of where do you fit? Well, I don't quite fit what the black people's idea of a black woman is. I don't quite fit into white people because if I think I do at some point, they're going to make sure that I know that I'm other. So where the hell, what, what, what do I do? Where do I fit? And I think I've spent a long, I think I've spent a long part of my life dampening down parts of myself to try and fit whoever was there or to try and fit, um, fit in around people who maybe I felt more comfortable with. I wouldn't say completely comfortable, but I'd say people I felt more comfortable with, um, or trying to shy away from parts of myself or my culture that look that that society was saying wasn't acceptable behavior and that's not how you are to get on don't speak like that if you want to get on you know don't have that kind of attitude if you want to get on with people if you want to be successful you need to be more like this if you want to show that you're educated you need to be more like this um and so I feel as so I suppose it's always been this sort of push pull I think there's just always been this um confusion I would say in my own mind and I think that's manifested as low self-esteem for many years um, about where I where I sit as a non-white woman um, in all sections of society, really. Yeah. It is so, you know, when you were, that, that rings so true for me, that sense of trying to find the identity of trying to fit in lots of boxes that maybe you don't fully fit in any of them. And I, I think... I wonder, as I sort of say that, if that is a unique experience for those who are non-white, or if there is perhaps a level of that experience for everyone. I feel like being a non-white woman, growing up maybe first, second generation in in you know a society where you are other in inverted commas, that is really um, probably highlights that more you know, a little bit like COVID highlights, you know, the sense of walking around feeling like we don't quite belong with each other when we feel like we want to. It it is this again, isn't it, of really, this puts a magnifying glass on it. I 
I just was so struck by that. It's absolutely the experience I've had. And I had a thought actually um, around class as well. And I think that this is very interesting. Someone recently called me middle class. (laughs) And I really wondered where that came from for them and what it actually meant for me. You know, what was it they saw in me? And what do I see in me? And also, what were my aspirations? Because I don't believe I grew up middle class, maybe lower middle class, max, you know, um, in terms of education and things. I'm sort of, you know, probably had opportunities that the women before me didn't. But it's really interesting, isn't it? This sense of accent, how you speak Mm. and being an actor. Because... (laughs) And I'd love to hear your take on this because I often feel that the greatest role I ever played was this one. You know, I put this person together to fit the play I was in, to be able to play my part well here. Whatever part that was I was going to choose, I put this person together. I watched TV and I learned how to speak RP accent. I went to drama school and they only solidified that for me. But this was all learned behavior that I actively remember choosing I remember watching the TV and go okay that's how people who seem to get on really well in the society speak copy how they speak looking around and going well what kind of house do people who seem to be succeeding live in right well let's try and get a house like that what are they doing are they going to university right well let's go to university you know um and I was just really interested for that experience what that experience might be like for you it's, oh, it's, it's an interesting one because, I mean, I've gone through a lot of different phases because I remember in my teenage years, I went through this very sort of angry, you know, like I call it my angry, angry, angry black woman phase. I actually did go through that now thinking about it, where I sort of picked up Malcolm X and read that um, <laughs> and autobiography of Malcolm X and just, and was listening to like X-Clan, like listening to all these like really political sort of hip hop um, that my brother would listen to and I'd sort of pick up bits and listening to Louis Farrakhan speeches or what have you um, years ago. Um, and then completely pulling away from that after having experiences at certain society meetings, the university that I went to had an African society and realizing that people there weren't, pre- weren't practicing what they were preaching in terms of unity. So I've gone through all these different things, but one thing that's always actually kind of been quite consistent is the way I speak. And I don't know if that's because my mum taught me how to read from quite a young age. Um, I remember before even, one of my earliest memories was, is of my mum reading to me before, before, I was at, before I was at nursery. And all the way through infant school, through primary school, through secondary school, I'd always get picked to read out things in assembly. Um, or they'd do these class readers where they'd give everyone the book and then they'd have one person would read out loud and everybody else would follow. And then they'd switch they'd switch to another person but I was always the person that would just read page after page and I'd be thinking hang on a minute is anyone else going to read here come on teacher um so the way I speak has always been something which I think um not when I've been around friends who are very London I would always immediately start talking a little bit more you know I just and even if I'm around my mum you know I start you know there's a little bit of Jamaican uh, a little bit creeps in so that so the speech thing around middle class has always kind of been there, um, and then acting obviously became even more important to speak properly and articulate. But I actually used to go to quite a lot of groups that were local groups and that were actually quite heavily black. It was mainly black people that were in the workshops and black people that would run them. 
but even then I still would I still sort of spoke like this um and so the class thing I mean my background is working class it's there's there's no you know there's no debate on that um and I've had this conversation with a friend of mine about class because she's got she's from quite a working class background but um we've sort of talked about whether it's to do with your state, like your, your financial status, if that somehow elevates you to middle class, because I know a lot of people will assume I'm middle class. Um, I remember I was sat, this was at an acting class, actually an acting workshop years ago, and somebody passed this remark. I think once again, I was the only black person on the table, <laughs> but this guy passed this remark about council estates and he said something really negative. And I went, I grew up on a council estate. And then he completely backtracked and sort of withdrew what he's, but I, I can't remember exactly what the conversation was, but I remember clearly the assumption was that I must've grown up in a nice house with a nice garden. Um, well, I mean, no, I didn't. I grew up in a, in a block of flats actually. Um, and the very fact that I, and the very fact that I wasn't what he was talking about completely blew his little theory out of the water. So um, I don't, I mean, I hate, I probably, I still would define myself as working class, but other people would say that I'm middle class because of what I do for a living, um, how I talk, maybe my level of income, um, the fact that I go to the theatre. <laughs> That's a very middle class thing to do, isn't it? Actually, I don't think it is. I think the perception is that it's middle class, but I, I think that's wrong. I don't think it should be middle class at all. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I feel like I've gone off in a few different directions there. <laughs> no, no, I think it does. And I, I think it's more, you know, conversation, just kind of opening up that space. Uh, I think what's really interesting about all these conversations is how we don't have to actually answer anything. And what really interests me about all of them is actually just hearing what's present in this moment. And, and also accepting that that may change. You know, we might have a very different experience. We have to have exactly the same conversation again in five years' time. We might be saying different things again because we are an evolving space. You know, we all are. Um, we're not stagnant as we haven't been stagnant in ourselves yet. The one constant sort of thing in our lives has probably been that we experience our experience through this skin. You know, we experience ourselves inside our skin. It does. And I, I was really struck by it because I think that as actors, there is a sort of privilege in knowing that we're making choices at certain points, you know, things that we pick to highlight and things that we pull back on. And sometimes it just happens without us realising at all. Like I still can't hear accents, which I always find really weird. Um, and I don't know why, you know, like uh, someone said to me the other day, they're from Newcastle. I was like, you're from Newcastle? Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> Have I not heard this, uh, you know, this accent? And I know it's there, but it doesn't, it doesn't compute for me. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I think I was actually really thinking when you were talking about all those things, is how it feels to be an actor and non-white as well, because we talk a lot about, you know, one, you know, as an industry, the struggles that people have if they're women, you know, being taken seriously. I mean, how do you feel as a woman, but also a non-white woman? Um, I feel like the industry has kind of ignored black women for a long time. Um, um, when I was growing up, I think, I think it was probably Josette Simon I think I remember. And then there were a few things on like Empire Road, which I think had Norman Beaton in it. And 
is it Carmen Munro possibly was in it. There was like, so there's been a few sort of, there's been a handful of black female actors that look like me. And so when I say black female, I mean dark skin complexion. I mean black, I don't mean mixed race, I mean black. Um, and so even that was quite specialist though. It was like, that was, that was the black sitcom. So that's where you'd see them. You wouldn't see them in mainstream. Um, and I think over the years, the industry has really struggled. Um, well, I don't know if it's struggled or if it's just willfully just ignored black women because it's like, we're not attractive enough to be the love interest, which is what a lot of the female parts, and there are a lot of white actresses will say that, you know, the parts are about, you, you know, you're there, you're there for the leading man. And um, so those lead parts you never really saw. Um, and I think if you did see, I mean, in a Hollywood film, there was still that whole thing of the women being the prostitute. It was one extreme or the other. It was this, it was either the mammy in your things like Gone with the Wind or it's, or it's the prostitute. And there's no in between, <laughs> you know, the vast majority of things, if you saw any black women at all. Um, unless you look at, you know, the black exploitation era and there's been various things and then obviously Spike Lee. But I mean, in terms of being in England, the lack of black females, dark skinned black females on TV, particularly because I wasn't taken to the theater as a child. So I, all my influences came from the television. I mean, it was just, it was like we didn't exist. It was, and, and, and it was, and if you did see somebody on television, you would call, you would call the family to the room because it's like, oh my God, there's a black, there's a black person on television. Um, <laughs> you know, and I tell people that and they laugh. I'm like, yeah, you laugh, but actually it was a flipping novelty to get one black person on the television back in the 70s and 80s. It was an event. Um, I feel like the industry is getting better. Um, I think particularly over the last 12 months, advertising has gone insane now with commercials. Um, and so suddenly you're seeing black women, black women, and Michaela Cowell just had, you know, uh, I may destroy you, which I think has just brought the conversation forward. How many years by showing multi-layered, dark-skinned black women just being themselves? You know, I remember. I remember. Actually, it's interesting. I remember. I was at. I can't remember. It was some uh, reading, like theatre reading, and I was there, and I was talking to one of the other black actresses afterwards, and I was talking about the fact that I was just finding it so hard to just even get seen for anything. And I remember her saying, "Well, you know, if you're a black woman, you 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 better you better not be too attractive, then you'll get work," um, because it was almost as if, as a black woman, like I say, you're not going to get cast as the lead, but subconsciously, I think if you probably did have a certain level of attractiveness, they wouldn't know what to do with you. They wouldn't know consciously that that's why they're having trouble casting you. But I think there's, I think on some level, if you look a certain way, if you don't fit a certain stereotype, or if you didn't fit a certain stereotype, you weren't gonna get cast because like I say, it was either the prostitute or the mammy, you know, that's still, and you, the plump kind of homely black woman which I think is a stereotype that a lot of people still have in their heads when they think black women. I'll never forget, actually, I used, I lived in Wiltshire for a while and I worked in an office that was all white. And I remember um, there was uh, one of the girls that I got on really well with. I met her husband at a Christmas party and I remember him saying, oh, she doesn't look anything like I imagined. Um, and because apparently this girl, 
Yeah, it's like, what did you, and I didn't, and I regret not asking actually, because I should have said, what did you imagine me to look like? There was something he said that I implied that he thought I was going to be bigger and older. I can't remember exactly what he said, but I remember thinking at that point, hmm, so because she, because I think she used to call me quite wise and she used to tell him things that I'd said. Um, And I just thought that was interesting because I thought, oh, what you thought I was, you thought I'd be like, what, some 60-year-old, you know, homely, plump, you know, comely black woman, the wise old, I, do you know what I mean? The sort of wise earth mother of the, of the tribe or something. I just, you know, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> but, um, and so, and obviously the, our industry, you know, the acting industry, it plays on stereotypes and it has to kind of pigeonhole people. That's kind of what it does. I think you're seeing that less so now though I think casting is a lot more experimental than it used to be. But, you know, when you put, when you start putting color or race into the mix, the stereotypes just get ridiculous. Yeah. I think, yeah, the experiences of that, absolutely. I think the, the last audition I was offered that made me leave acting was going to play a woman, the daughter in a corner shop for a massive tabloid paper. I think I spoke to you about this and I just, yeah. no, no, I'm not even going to audition for that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, yeah. I am. Um, but also, you know, I remember being at drama school and playing a part. I played Amelia in The Winter's Tale. Um, <laughs> you know, played it as a, as a, you know, had a French accent and we kind of created this character. And one of my peers said, I just couldn't understand how you were there. I was like, was she from like a colony? And I couldn't understand what he meant at first. And then I realised he meant, and he expressed this himself, like, was she an, a slave? Was she brought in as, you know, he couldn't understand how I could be non-white, have a French accent and be in this sort of Shakespearean play. Like those three things couldn't, he couldn't get past that to see a character. You know, there was the, the lens of the, the, the sort of, the filter of my complexion threw mm. it all out for him. Couldn't so get anything else that was created, what, we couldn't get past that. How is this person in this play? Um, and I, I, you know, I... I respect the fact that he could actually voice that to me. I mean, it, it brought up a, a vast amount of stuff because it has so much imposter syndrome at drama school anyway. You know, five foot nine, curvaceous brown has been one of the hardest things for me to own, you know, because I, I'm sure you understand this. You know, when you are non-white, you want to be seen and simultaneously feel like you're invisible all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. It, it is... It is a very complex thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm sort of aware of the privilege of speaking to you for quite some time now, but I, and I feel like we've got to a place where we kind of come full circle. You know, you expressing that sense of just being as you mm-hmm. were as a child with that kind of pre-seven, that preschool age. You know, that pre-junior age. And actually, the way you describe yourself now as somebody who's very comfortable to start to experience all of the things you are, integrating all those experiences again. So I suppose to finish, I'd be really interested to hear what would you say to Mm. that young Andy? If you could look back now to that girl, Mm. what would you say to her having had all the experiences you've had and seen your journey come through? What wisdom would you share with her? Um, I would say 
be your own best friend. Um, you are completely enough. Um, I would say to her, know what your values are, um, live those values, and anybody else who doesn't uphold those values are not worth your time. Um, and also that, that you are beautiful inside and out, you know, in your own way, in your own uniqueness. And you are unique. Don't try and be like anybody else um, because that's what's special ultimately. Because, you know, if you try and be all things to all people, I think you just end up with a, with a sort of, uh, just some sort of bland, <laughs> just... And so, yeah, I think the biggest thing would be be the person that you are because that that is what you are here to do. You are here to experience every part of you in this world and do that fully and always remain curious. <laughs> I always think that's always an important thing to say to any child, always remain curious, never, never stop asking why. Yeah, so lovely. And to you, to you, you sort of come back to that place that just lives in your skin as you are you know to even embrace our, our outer covering and all of that that it holds for us as we embrace all of the inside mm. Andy thank you so much you've raised so much that and I think it's you know as we listen through to all these conversations so many of these themes echoed and um, expressed and and I'm so grateful to hear this from you I know some of these conversations we've touched on before and you know but actually that that depth of your experience is a real privilege for me to hear as your friend thank you. I enjoyed it I feel like I've only scratched the surface I probably could sit here for another five hours you know when it's evening Get the wine out. <laughs> totally. And, you know, I'm so aware of that, that we are really, in all of these conversations, really scratching the surface of something that's so much bigger and deeper. And we're really not answering the questions, but just starting to explore the conversations. And I really hope that that's where, you know, that these conversations and when people listen to them become just a source of carrying on this conversation for themselves, asking themselves the questions, speaking to other people, and starting to get under the skin of what's really going mm. on people um yeah no I love I love what you're doing with this podcast and I think it's really important because it's like you said earlier right, right at the start it's so much about politics and about race in terms of socio-economic uh spheres and and it's all it that it sort of becomes about statistics and very general but actually what are what are our personal experiences what does it actually mean what is it like to walk in our shoes Yes. day after day yeah, absolutely and I'm so grateful for you for sharing your story with thank big you so oh, thank yeah. you <laughs> I want to say a massive thank you to my guest for sharing their voice and story so authentically and a massive thank you to you for being here and a part of this conversation our stories and voices are an important part of who we are and collectively make up our human experience, your voice included. So please come and share your takeaways and reflections from the podcast. Plus, give it a like and a subscribe too if you'd like to. You can find more ways to explore women's voices and your own voice over on the website, thekinaballard.com. But for now, thank you for listening today and I look forward to the next conversation with you soon.